we turn our hearts and our attention to God's word, would you join me in a prayer of illumination that we ask his spirit to make his word clear and applicable to our lives, both individually and corporately. Father, we come before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us and counsel us into all the truth, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to see the beauty and the goodness and the truth and the majesty of Christ, and that you would show us, that you would shape our minds and our hearts to show us, both individually and corporately, what it is you want to change about us, what it is we need to maybe embrace more deeply, what behavior or attitude or perspective that we are either to give up or adopt based on your word. Your word is inspired by you, inerrant, and is useful, is profitable to correct us and to rebuke us and to change us and to teach us and to train us in righteousness that we would be equipped for the work that you've assigned to us. So, Lord, as the choir sang, here we are, Lord, we acknowledge as a people. Here we are, we surrender to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the passage upon which the teaching is based this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. So, here is the reading of God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And now it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. You know how it is with movie previews. You go to a movie, and I don't get to see movies too much anymore, but you go to a movie, the movie says it's starting at 6.20, 6.30, and the first half hour is previews. 30 mi- so really, a 6.30 movie means it's starting at 10 after 7, just to give you a clue as how this whole thing works. Okay, And you're going, and they're telling you things like, next decade, the new Star Wars movie comes out, and you're going, 2029, I can't wait. You know, who knows what will be going on, you know. Or the trailer has come out for The Walking Dead, you know, and you're excited. Some of us are. Some of I know not all of us are excited. Some of you are smiling. Some of us are excited for The Walking Dead coming out. You know, a preview is, what is the function of a preview? A preview is telling you something that is about to happen in the future in order to do something to you in the present, 
It wants to gear you up, encourage you, it gets you excited, gets you anticipating what's going on in the future so that you will be hopeful in the present. What Jesus is doing is he has called up Peter, James, and John to a high mountain. It was probably Mount Hermon, but it's reminiscent of Mount Sinai. It's reminiscent of the Exodus. He's called his leadership team, his leadership communion, community to him, and he's giving them a preview of the future. He is giving them a preview of glory, of transcendent, resplendent glory. And for them, he's bringing the future into the present in order to do certain things. Why is he doing that? This text is telling us two things, two reasons why Jesus is giving them a preview of consummated resplendent glory. The first, he wants to give them the weapon of hope. And second, he wants to give them the power of affirmation. Two things as they face their journey, as they move forward, he wants to give them the weapon of hope, not an uncertainty. So he's showing them. He's bringing the future into the present to give them the weapon of hope. And then with the voice from the cloud, again, reminiscent of the Exodus, because where did the glory cloud? It came and it revealed itself, it overshadowed Mount Sinai. So here again, you get, a, in a sense, a picture, a fulfillment, reminiscent of the Exodus. You get the power of affirmation. Well, remember last week as we look at this and we take a look, first of all, at the weapon of hope. We said last week that Mark 8 into chapter 9 is kind of this continental divide between the first and second half of the Gospel of Mark. So the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it's divided into two halves. Mark chapters 1 through 8 is all about who is Jesus. His person, his character, the fact that he's love, he's healing, he's forgiveness, he's rest. And then you've got this kind of climactic moment, okay? Jesus is going, they're going to the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he says to, again, he gathers his disciples and pretend they're at Starbucks, and they're hanging out. And he says, what's the word on the street about me? Who are people saying that I am? And the disciples, they say, well, a whole bunch of folks are saying Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Jesus uses this as kind of a teaching moment, teaching tool. And he says, uh, let's bring it home now. Let's, how about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter has this kind of knack for speaking for the rest of them. You notice that happens in this passage too, okay? Peter never thinks silence is an option, by the way. Maybe that's one of the reasons I like Peter. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's for a different sermon. But Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And from the moment that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, everything changes. And what you have if the first half of Mark's gospel is all about who is Jesus, the second half of Mark's gospel is what did he come to do? The first half is who is he? His power, his character, how he treats people, his relationships, that he brings healing, that he's inaugurating the kingdom of God. The second half is answering the question, how will he go about inaugurating the kingdom of God? And it's in a fairly shocking way. 
For as verse 1 talked about, verse 1 of chapter 9, kind of just to bring this around and give you some context, talks about there are some standing here who won't experience death. In other words, you'll still be living when you experience the coming of the kingdom of God in power. And of course, what he's talking about here is one commentator put it, he says, this coming of God's kingdom with power has a lot more to do with the radical defeat of deep-rooted evil than with the destruction of the good world that God made and loves. Jesus seems to think that evil will be defeated and the kingdom will come, but here's the rub, precisely through his own suffering and death. So great news, who is Jesus? Love and forgiveness and healing and all of this. And then the hard news, how does he bring that kingdom? He brings that kingdom, he defeats evil, he inaugurates that kingdom through his suffering and rejection and death. As another commentator put it, what seems like it might become a story of triumph. That's the first half of the gospel. We're doing all this healing. We're feeding 5,000. We're calming the storm. We're the Lord of the Sabbath. We're confronting Pharisees. You want to get behind that kingdom, right? And then the minute Peter confesses you are the Christ, what does Jesus say? He says the Christ must suffer and be rejected and be held in contempt and die. And so this commentator says what seems like it might become a story of triumph is going to look more and more like a tragedy. So what does Jesus do? Knowing that this is where the gospel is moving, knowing that this is where his life is heading, that what he came to do was he came to die on a cross. He came to die. So what does he do? Right at the outset, right at the beginning of the second half of the narrative, He gives them, he kind of jumps over the present into the future, calls it back into the present, and gives them a preview of glory. And he does this in order to give them the weapon of hope as they face their own journey. As they face what they thought was triumph, and see, because in a Jewish mindset, in a first century Jewish mindset, there were plenty of people who claimed to be the Messiah. A lot of people would claim, and what would happen is a Messiah would come and they would lead a rebellion or they would lead a revolution. They would try to overthrow the Roman Empire, and lo and behold, they would get killed. And what that meant was they were a failed Messiah. And so you look at Jesus, and from all appearances, here's Jesus. Peter's confessing he is the Messiah. And what does, what does Jesus then say this Messiah is going to do? He's going to die. Yet, He's not a failed Messiah. It is through that vehicle and that pattern of suffering and rejection and apparent weakness and death that he will bring the kingdom of God and they will taste the kingdom of God with power. And Jesus is preparing them. Remember, this is Jesus and his kind of key leadership team, Peter, James, and John. So if you look at the text, verse 2 says, after six days, Jesus takes with him. So he calls apart from the rest Peter, James, and John. And he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. And here's the future brought into the presence. He was transformed. He was transfigured. He gives them a glimpse at future consummated glory. And Mark's description of it is his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. William Lane says of the transfiguration, he says in Mark, the transfiguration is a dramatic indication of the resplendent glory which belongs to Jesus as God's unique son. 
as a revelation of the concealed splendor of the Son of Man, this event points forward to the advent promised back in chapter 8, verse 38, when Jesus' status as the eschatological judge will be manifested to the whole world. The episode provides a personal and preliminary revelation that he whom the disciples follow on a way marked by suffering and humiliation is the Son of Man whose total ministry has cosmic implications. Commentators provide the insight. They say the transfiguration, Mark 9, kind of here is in the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the second half of the Gospel of Mark, functions much like the passages of the suffering servant back in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So in Isaiah chapter 53, we read the following. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now you read that by itself, and what is it? Speaks of tragedy. This servant of God, this one who's going to come representing God is going to be crushed. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be ridiculed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. The curse of God is going to fall upon him. So what does Isaiah the prophet give the people of God? Because remember, he is speaking to the people. of He's the mouthpiece of God, the messenger of God, speaking to equip, to encourage, to prepare and equip for life, to train the people of God. So he gives them these words at the very end of Isaiah 52. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Many nations shall be sprinkled. Now listen to what he's saying there at the end of Isaiah 52. At the end of Isaiah 52, he's talking about glory. He's talking about exaltation. He's preparing them because what is to follow is he's talking about the humiliation and suffering. Now Mark chapters 9 through 16 function the same way. Because the second half of Mark's gospel is going to talk about the suffering and the humiliation of the Messiah. That he has come. What has he come to accomplish? Our redemption and our redemption, not through strength, but through weakness. Not through victory, but through defeat. He's going to do that by surrendering to the worst evil can throw at him. And he's about to tell his leadership team, this is what we're going to endure. He knows things that they don't know. He knows that Peter will deny him. He knows that a garden of Gethsemane is coming. He knows that Judas will betray him. So chapter 9 is functioning as what? To give them hope for the journey ahead. They need not an uncertain hope, not a wishy-washy hope. We're not talking about the power of positive thinking. We're talking about the weapon of hope that gives them courage, that gives them poise, that gives them, even in spite of themselves, in spite of their failings, will sustain them through the hell that is in front of them. 
And I don't know about you, but I know I need that kind of hope. And I believe we all need that kind of hope. See, C.S. Lewis said, speaking of the hope of heaven, listen to these words. When he was speaking of the hope of eternity, of our future, he said, heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony into a glory. I don't know about you, that's hard for me to even get my head wrapped around right now. That I look at life, and I look at the difficulty of things, but we need that to be real to us, do we not? That heaven, once attained, the glory of it, the brilliance of it, the radiance of it, this is what Jesus is showing Peter, James, and John. And through his word, this is what he's showing you this morning. That heaven, glory, consummated, once attained, will work backwards to turn every agony into a glory. Friends, that's a weapon that we need to hold on to if we're going to face life without becoming more bitter, more hard, and more joyless. If we're going to face life with a courage, with an honesty, we're not going to deny suffering and pain, with an authenticity, with a reality that says, this is hard, but I believe the Word of God says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And Jesus is here giving us a preview. This is better than Star Wars comes out in a couple of months. He's saying, you want to see consummated glory? Here it is. The question is, does that shape your heart? I included this, speaking of biblical hope, in our reflection for this morning. But Dan Dan Allender says, Biblical hope is substantial faith regarding the future. Hope is the dream of shalom, the anticipation of joy that comes through us and prompts us to rise and rebuild, to envision and risk for what is not yet. Hope takes the experience of loss and uses it as the raw material for writing a new and unexpected story. See, Jesus is now bringing this future into the present. Why? To give them a weapon in the present. To say, as you face this journey, you've got the dream of shalom being inaugurated in a way that is going to knock your socks off. Jesus knows that this is not the way they expected the kingdom to come. That this is a completely upside down, inside out inversion of everything that they were raised on, built on, and he's turning their worlds upside down. So he's equipping them saying, remember this, I'm bringing the future into the present. Of course, they don't understand that. And so what do they do? They're coming down and they're asking all sorts of questions. They see along with Jesus Elijah and Moses, and of course Peter, and I don't want to be too hard on Peter, he's always the one, you know, it's kind of like he never, as I said earlier, never knows about being silent, does he? So he's kind of like, let's build three tents, let's build three tabernacles, literally the word means tabernacle or shelter. And commentators again give us the insight, they say, what's going on here is Peter, and of course, because the text tells us, they were all terrified, he's filled with fear, And what he's fearful of, what he's anxious for, because he knows that this is alluding to the Exodus. So here's a new Exodus, a second Exodus. And Peter is anxious for the promised glory. What did the Exodus lead to? The promised land. Peter wants that promised land now. 
only one problem. What does it skip over? The wilderness. And what is the wilderness about? Suffering. And so again, what does William Lane say? The blessings of the new age, which will be shared by all the people of God, cannot be secured until Jesus has accomplished the sufferings which are integral to his appointed task, culminating in his death. In other words, Jesus gives them a preview of glory, equipping them with the weapon of hope, because the second half of Mark's gospel is all about exaltation, which is what the transfiguration is revealing. Radiance, brilliance, brightness, clothes that no one could bleach like this. I mean, the picture is is mind-numbing. It's extraordinary. This exaltation, this glory... Here's the principle, though. It is inseparably bound up with Jesus' humiliation. You cannot escape that. And that will be a constant message of Jesus as we go through the second half of Mark's gospel. So you absolutely need the weapon of hope. But that's not enough. There is more. Jesus gives them more. And this actually comes... Looking down at verse 7, where he gives them the power of affirmation. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, Tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We need to realize this is the second time that a voice from heaven has come speaking to Jesus and speaking to the disciples. Now, the first time was at Jesus' baptism. And this was addressed, this voice from heaven, the voice of the Father from heaven, was addressed specifically to Jesus. Because as Jesus was coming up out of the waters, the voice came from, the se- from heaven and it was addressed, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then, of course, in His humanity, The Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, anointing him, equipping him for the task, for the mission, for the vocation that lay before him. Now, the second time the voice from heaven is heard, it's addressed to the disciples because it's saying to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son. And it's giving them an admonition, a command, listen to him. In other words, the admonition coming out of the affirmation, the vindication of, he's saying, this is my beloved son, your future, your eternity, your life, your everything hinges upon him. And it's not insignificant that the voice comes from a cloud, because this is, again, is the glory cloud of Exodus, where in Exodus 24, for instance, we read Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. In other words, on Mount Sinai, God came down, 
God revealed his presence. God revealed his beauty. God revealed his glory in a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. And as William Lane says, the cloud is God's tabernacle, the pavilion which both reveals and conceals his glory. But now another commentator says, he says, now we learn here that this is not a repeat of Mount Sinai. This is more of a fulfillment. This is more of what Mount Sinai was pointing to. Because he says, in a head-snapping twist, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah, Moses, and every other prophet has done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. So on this wilderness mountain, the Father is giving what? He is giving his approval, his affirmation, his vindication of the Son. He is saying, this is my beloved Son. Everything hinges on what you do with him. Everything hinges on whether he is the source of your life or not. Listen to him because now Jesus is taking on the role of the rejected suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. All of history, all of the promises, all of the covenant, all of the curses, all of everything is falling upon Jesus. And what is he doing? He is fortifying Jesus and he is fortifying the disciples with the power of affirmation. See, what do we do with all of this? This transfiguration is this preview of glory in order to equip, sustain, and encourage them with hope and then also with affirmation. See, this is an affirmation. Do you hear the affirmation from the Father? This is my beloved son. There's a journey ahead of Jesus. It's not an easy one, is it? To go through the cross and everything that leads to it. So what is he doing? He is equipping him. And he's equipping him with affirmation. He is giving him the affirmation. In other words, it is the love and approval, the affirmation of God that strengthens and buttresses and fortifies Jesus for the task ahead. What is it that's going to strengthen and fortify and buttress us? It's going to be a message that says, here's the standard, get busy and do it. Here are the biblical principles. Let me lay them out for you. Go follow them. Or is it going to be more like a, how you'd motivate an athlete? Here's the inspiration. Look at Kobe Bryant. He gets up at four in the morning. Look at Michael Jordan, that killer instinct he had. Follow him. Be inspired. Go. How well does that work for us? I know for me, if, if I, on a good day, that may last 15 seconds. I watch the ESPN 30 for 30, and I go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then I go kind of get the next dessert. It hasn't lasted very long. Or I'm impatient. That doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the inner spiritual dynamic to change us. It's the power of affirmation that we need. God gave Jesus affirmation. Jesus who probably didn't need it, did he? He's Jesus. And still, what does God give Jesus? He gives him, this is who you are. You are my beloved. You are my son. 
I'm equipping you, anointing you with the Spirit. I'm approving you. I'm giving you my unconditional favor and love to fortify you for the task ahead. And he strengthens Jesus by love. Don't we need the same thing? To be strengthened by love? One writer put it very well when he asks, have you ever had this kind of experience when the compassion and love of another person helped you deal with your suffering? When someone's unconditional approval and encouragement transforms your fear into resolve? When an encounter with beauty seems to neutralize your anxiety and gives you hope? And if you got that kind of help more often, which maybe is what the communion of saints is supposed to be all about, wouldn't you be different? Wouldn't trouble make you wiser, deeper, and stronger, instead of bitter and hard and joyless? So here's the question. How are you going to get more of that kind of approval, that kind of encouragement, that kind of love? You need to know the heart of the Father, who just as he's, because I want you to think through this logically with me for a second. If you are a Christian, what does that mean is true of you? If you are a Christian, you are not separated from Christ. You are in Christ. Paul, when he applies the gospel to the church at Galatia, says that we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Think about those words. Think about the reality. Do you believe the Bible to be true? If you're a Christian, Christ lives in you, which means the heart of the Father that was towards Christ is also the heart of the Father towards you. The voice of the Father that was towards Christ is the voice of the Father towards you, which means the voice of the Father that is saying, you are, this is my beloved Son, is putting his hands on your shoulders, looking you in the eye, and saying, I'm proud of you. You have my joy. You have my trust. Friends, that will change you more than any inspiration. You've got to look, and it's through ordinary means. God hasn't given us any extraordinary means. It's through things like the Word and prayer and the sacraments that we need to come to see and to experience and sense and taste the heart of the Father affirming us, saying, you are my son or daughter. You cannot lose my love. You cannot lose my favor. You cannot lose my approval. I, you have my joy. You have my trust. You have my delight. Will we be a communion of saints, though, that's encouraging that in one another, that's edifying and speaking that kind of life to one another? Will we go to the Word with that kind of hunger, hungering to know who we are? Instead of trying to live up to something, will we know and live out of who we are in Christ? The rest of the Gospel of Mark, the rest of the second half, is a tough journey ahead. It reads more like a tragedy. So what does God give us? A preview of glory. A preview of consummated glory. What you know your future is. And he brings it into the present in order to galvanize you with the weapon of hope and equip you with the power of affirmation. Father, I pray that you would teach us to read your word, to pray, to take the sacraments, to interact with one another in such a way that is communicating the beauty of the gospel. 
that in everything we do, we do it to communicate Christ. That we would all sense Jesus and experience Jesus and embrace what he has done for us. That that gives us hope and that affirms us so that we go out and we face the difficulty of life. We face the trials of life. We face the hardships of life. We can't say all will be well. But we can say that we have the heart of the Father looking us in the eye, saying, you're my son or daughter. I'm pleased with you. You have my heart. You have my joy. You have my trust. I'm proud of you and pleased with you. Lord, may that dynamic so work in our lives to transform us from one degree of glory to another as we learn to behold that message. In Jesus' name, amen.